Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to begin reading in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11. We'll read through verse 16, and as is my custom, I'll be reading out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. This morning we um, tackle a passage of Scripture that uh, most of you have foreshadowed a little bit because you... We dealt with this some time ago before we even started this portion of the study in Corinthians. And this morning we are going to tackle it headlong. And uh, by God's mercy and grace, we will pray for heart and mind changes that will glorify God. And that is... The object of every message is change. And so we have changed our service times a little bit today. That wasn't substantial. Uh, we've changed a few things here and there. Our day of the week for We're Life Clubs, that wasn't substantial. Substantial change is when we respond by faith, believing God's Word. That it is true and that it is authoritative. And it isn't His truth that we're going to emphasize today, but it's authority. For that is really the issue at hand today. And so as we get into this study and we apply a simple sentence, and that is that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, here's yet another area where we can, if we are foolish and immature in our faith or very narrow in understanding or desiring after our liberty, uh, we can get tripped up, and the church has been tripped up horribly. So we are going to uh, tackle what is a difficult topic, um, but only been difficult for about the last 50 years. wasn't difficult really even 40 years ago to instruct in this portion of Scripture, 
Um, in fact, if you ever get an opportunity, I would encourage you just out of curiosity to read commentaries on this portion of Scripture that are more than 60 years old and compare them and contrast them, I should say, because there's very little comparison to modern commentaries on this. I did a little bit of that this morning because I had some extra time and I just wanted to pick up a couple of my newer ones and to see what they had done with this and, and it was exactly what I anticipated. So let's go, Lord, in prayer because that's what we're going to need to really uh, address this portion of Scripture before us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity this morning again to look into your word. And uh, Lord, we come before you acknowledging um, the tendency within the heart of man and our pride to fail to submit ourselves to your truth, to recognize his authority and to bring it into our lives. And we know that this is sin. And we confess it before you freely and we ask that you might forgive us of it. And that, Lord, that you might uh, root out of our heart any stubbornness or bitterness against your word that has been put there not by your spirit, but by the spirit of this world. Lord, that we might be found as a people desiring to please you above all things. Lord, we do pray you might guard this time, that your word of truth might go forth as you would have it to today, not by this man's wisdom, but by your spirit. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul begins this portion of Scripture handling yet another issue, another aspect of the circumstances around uh, the problems in Corinth. And it seems like there's just no end to them, but there is because the book has an end. (laughs) It's a few chapters away, but the book has an end. So there is an end to the problems in Corinth. Um, But we shouldn't be surprised, should we? When we start off with the knowledge that this is a carnal church that is fleshly minded, we should expect that there's going to be problems in multiple areas, not just in one. And so the idea that a a problematic church is going to be be able to boil it down to one issue um, is unlikely. There is probably one root, and he's already identified that root early in Corinthians, that you are fleshly minded, you're thinking of yourselves. And it has borne itself in many different fruits, that root of uh, self-orientation, uh, that root of, of fleshly thinking, of, and fleshly thinking is always self-oriented. Uh, and so it is borne out, self out in all of these different fruits, and Paul's going to identify them and address them. But he's laying forth principle after principle. We're going to see yet another principle today that we're going to add to the principles that we've already seen. For three chapters, he has really developed and pressed the principle that is, uh, deals with a lot of the issues. And that is that we ought by love serve one another. That our love should be concerned about building up the body of Christ, not me getting mine. And so in the midst of this, before he tackles yet one more area, he does have some praise for them. 
In verse 2, he does want to encourage them that they haven't just forgotten everything they've been taught. He says, you remember me in all things. Um, they, they do know that Paul took a position on these things. They do know that he taught them. They, they do bring it to mind. It is part of the discussion, um, but it hasn't necessarily been applied. And so he does say that you are remembering me and you're keeping the traditions that have been delivered to them. And you might say, well, then what's the problem? If they're keeping the traditions the way they were delivered, what is the issue at hand? And the issue at hand is that Christian living is not simply by the traditions taught to you from your predecessors or from your spiritual father. There must be an understanding of them. And this is critical that we have an understanding of why do we do this in church? Why is God expecting this of me as a Christian? And that's why it's the principles that we want to focus in on rather than making so much emphasis on its application. I want you to know the principles, then we shouldn't have to argue over the application because you grasp the fundamental principles behind them. And as they are lived out in your life, you may explore them in a, in a whole breadth of ways that I think will honor God if you're going to apply the principle consistently in your life. And so, are we just concerned about whether you eat meat that's been offered to idols? No. We're concerned about a principle, and that is your testimony. What are you doing in terms of your testimony to the world and to the weak in the faith who are still struggling with whether Christ really means anything or not? Uh, What are you doing to promote Christ to them? rather than what are you doing to promote yourself and your liberties? Well, we can now take that principle, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, and say, well, I have to be lovingly edifying to others, not only in my speech, but in my behavior. And we understand very quickly that that uh, goes far beyond the perimeter of what kind of meat you eat, or if you eat meat, right? We understand that. Well, now we're going to come into another area. And Paul says, listen, you've been keeping these, but the best way to destroy biblical godly traditions is that we lose track of the principles behind them, and then they become traditions for tradition's sake, and they can easily be cast off for that same reason. Or they can be wrongly emphasized because the principle is lost. And let me give you a couple examples. Um, of course, in Israel, uh, we have uh, the law was given to Israel. By the time of Jesus coming along, we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees involved in their interpretations of the law. And they had set up these hedges, these, these uh, extra laws, laws of men that were designed to protect men from violating the laws of God. And they began treating the laws of men as more important even than the laws of God. And sometimes by their manipulation of the laws of men, they were actually violating the laws of God. And this is what Jesus Christ takes them to task for. Oh, you're you're fine individuals. You're worried about, you know, counting off seeds. um, And then you uh, declare that stuff that you owe to your parents, you have have, uh, committed somewhere else uh, under the, the guise of godliness. 
And you end up violating the very principles of God's words, which is honor your father and mother. Fundamental principle of God's word. And so when we come to this, we need to know why ought we to be doing what we are doing, not just that we do it because we've always done it. Because once it loses its meaning, it loses its authority. And it can be easily, as I said, cast off. And that is exactly what we've seen in this situation. Is that we are now uh, 50 years into a time when half of this instruction has been eliminated from our society and uniquely uh, ours. And by ours, I mean here in the United States and Western Church um, and to a lesser degree in Europe, but almost entirely here in this country, interestingly enough. So what is it that he wants the principle, the principle he wants to establish and that is God's divine chain of command, of authority. And he sets it up immediately in verse 3. Just as we saw at the beginning of chapter 8, before he gets into the issue of meat offered to idols, whether you should eat of it or not, um, he gives the principle. Now he's going to lay forth this principle. I want you to know something. Remember, knowledge in Corinth was necessary to draw them out of carnality. Know something of Christ. You claim this knowledge. I know I've taught it to you, but let me reiterate it with the hope that it will sink in and penetrate. And if I was more obnoxious, I would say your thick skulls, but which is probably generally true. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So we have a very simple chain of command that we have God, Christ, man, woman. Now, immediately when we see that, we put ourselves in there and I think about my place in there and, and if you're a lady here, you're thinking about your place in there and says, oh, I'm at the bottom. Why wasn't I born a man? I've had just about each one of my daughters ask me at some point in their life, why couldn't I be born a man? Um, because God didn't want you to be or I didn't want you to be or someone along the line genetically, you're not. Be content with such things as you have. And we think that somehow the lower you are on this scale, the more miserable your life is going to be. When it's simply not true. Now, are there different expectations on that chain of command? Yes. Is there a need to subordinate to those within that chain? Yes. And Paul's going to go overboard a little bit later on. We're going to maybe get there this morning uh, to look at how this works. How are we all one in Christ? And yet there's these, this, uh, how are we the joint heirs with Jesus Christ? And yet we are subordinate to Christ. How is it that we are neither male or female, the kingdom of God? And yet there's a subordination here between, uh, of, of women to men. How is that? He simply lays forth this principle. That every man has a head, and that head is Christ. That each one, each mature male here in our church has a direct 
responsibility to God through Jesus Christ. You have a direct accountability to Christ for the exercise of your authority on earth that God has equipped you with, not only in terms of the image bearing, we're not, I'm going to get into that a little bit later here uh, in just a few minutes, but uh, He's equipped you with a different kind of body than a lady. You are stronger and you are, you not only have a different physicalness, you also have a different uh, psychology about you. You are distinct. There are men and there are women and they are different. And it's amazing how many people have made money just trying to communicate that. Trying to get people to understand that. And a gal in one church that uh, came up and her whole job was to go in and teach gender... What did she call that? Uh, she had a fancy word for it. In uh, corporations like Intel and other places. And so she went in there and I said, so basically your job is to go in there and teach that there are boys and there are girls and they are different. She says, yes. And you'd be surprised how hard that is. Well, we know that God made us that way. And so we know that God says, listen, you have a direct responsibility before me, um, men. Paul's going to talk about it. I created you first, created you differently, and you have a direct accountability, which means that I am under that authority and there is no excusing it. And the best place to go to, of course, that Paul's going to do is go to the Garden of Eden. He says, listen, let's go back to when God created man. And we find that when men sinned, um, who did God go to? He didn't go first to the serpent. He didn't go to the woman. He went to the one to whom he had granted the authority. And that was the man. You're responsible and so I'm coming to you and say, what is going on here? What have you done? Why are you hiding from me? Because Adam was responsible directly to the Lord. And then he did a horrible thing. He passed on that responsibility, literally, by saying, it was her. Now God goes to the woman. She says, of course, it was it. It was that serpent. And passes it on to creation outside of the image of God. So we know that we still have this divine requirement that we are answerable to Christ directly, gentlemen. And that kind of responsibility should lay heavy on our shoulders. That we cannot sit there and say to God, well, I can't control my family. That's why in the list of qualifications for pastor, elder, bishop is he must rule his family well. That is, is that he doesn't displace the authority that God has put on his shoulders to say you are responsible for not only their physical care, but you are responsible for their spiritual condition. It lays on me.
For within the church, God will go to the under-shepherd who is under Christ and say, you're responsible for your people. If you can't be responsible for your family, if you want to accept that authority, how can you accept the authority of shepherding the church? And so we know that every man has as his direct head Christ. So, we're going to start with the men, because that's where Paul starts in both sections of this passage. And the passage is only broken down into two sections, and uh, not men and women, but rather something about men and women, and then something else about men and women. And he's going to start with the men. Verse 4, every man, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. We usually come to this passage and we're, and we're all braced to talk about women. Isn't that interesting? And granted, most of the verses in terms of quantity of verses is going to be discussing that because that was already beginning to become an issue in Corinth because of the Greek influence that was coming in in which the women did not cover their heads. And so don't think this is something new, ladies, that just showed up 40 years ago um, in terms of trying to counter our culture. For the culture was there as well. Many Greek women walked about with their head uncovered. But Hebrew women typically did not. And so when we come to this passage, and the first instruction we find isn't to women at all. It's to men. And that statement is that when you prophesy, when you pray... And the indication here um, is likely within the context of your worship service, but perhaps even at all times, that when we engage in prayer and prophesying, by prophesying we're not talking about foretelling the future. Paul's going to use this word extensively here. He's really talking about preaching, proclaiming, speaking forth God's word. And so when you are going to be engaging yourself in prayer and in the preaching of God's word that it you are involved in worship. I know we think the singing part is the worship service, but it's not. It's it's a part of it. Um, but when we're involved in the prayer and the preaching, uh, the prayer and the proclamation, the prayer and communication, um, that God says your head needs to be uncovered. Why? Why is that a requirement that God has for man? And again, if we look at this, and by the way, our Jewish brethren today all uh, violate this very principle, don't they? They wear their yarmulkes, and they go to pray with their head covered all the time. Isn't that strange? And Paul here says, listen, um, when you see men encountering God, look at what God tells them. Look at, well, let's look at the first encounter between sinful man and God. What was the first indication that there was something between them? I've hidden myself and I've covered myself. Who told you you were naked? And kind of interesting also if you want to follow this along and, and it's, it, it, it's just a few instances where you find this, um, how God is honored. Um, for example, how does... God require Moses to honor him on hollow ground? Take off your sandals. Nothing man-made between you and me. 
Isn't that great? You want to hallow God, men? Nothing between me and my Savior. Not of this world's elusive dreams. Nothing between us. You might say, well, this is kind of symbolic. Yes, it is. And God is really into symbols. I've got to tell you this. Because it's part of your testimony. It's part of us making a declaration, a statement, that's saying that I have nothing between myself and God. I'm not going to cover this head. I'm going to uncover it before the Lord. Why? Because I'm recognizing His authority over me that there should be nothing there. There's no, there, there's no in-between there now. Between me and Christ, there is no authority. There is no barrier. And so I uncover myself before the Lord and that by means of doing that, I hallow Him recognizing before Him that I am the responsible one. I can't hide from you, not one bit, because I must answer to you. And when we look around and we see out of the roots of our culture and of many cultures, we will find the many cultures steeped in Christianity, you will find this played out. And interestingly enough, even today in our culture, we exercise this. We still make our men uncover their heads when we sing the national anthem, when we do the Pledge of Allegiances, when we walk indoors. I know some cowboys think they don't have to do this, but um, they uncover their heads, and I'm looking around. I don't see any men covered. I see lots of hats over there. Sometimes you guys leave them, but that's, that's all right. On the uh, thing, we take them off, we put them on that shelf come in your house and and I have a thing that I don't talk to people very much that have sunglasses on and when I want to have a conversation I always take off my sunglasses so I can see my eyes and I can see theirs if they let me um, but I always do that but even uncovering the hat and we recognize that in our culture and our men still culturally uh, at least gentlemen in our culture still recognize that if you're not a thug or gangster or something like that you're still going to exercise this principle it's a recognition of authority it's saying i'm responsible it's not i'm in charge here that is not what the statement we are making we're making i'm responsible what's the difference between those love (laughs) i'm in charge here is self-love it's saying it's having this immature knowledge about the fact that God put authority on men, but not mixing it with love and maturity so that you edify others. When I lovingly understand that I am the head of my family and the head of society, the head of church, then I recognize it as a responsibility, not as something that I'm going to lord over people but rather that I'm going to use that authority the way God designed it for, and that is to serve. Authority is to serve with? Yes. And so we come with the gospel, and we come leading in prayer, and we have our head uncovered because we are making a statement. And that statement is is that I am responsible before God, that I have accountability directly to Him. And I have to answer to Him. Not only for myself, 
but for those under my authority, whether they are in my family or in my church or even in my society. I'm responsible. While we still, in many quarters of our country, carry this tradition, we have lost its principle. While we still go around and take off our hats, most men don't know why they do other than my dad told me to. We teach it to our military people, I still think, don't we? Military guys, we still, under the arm, right? As soon as you go in the house, in. Because we are saying, I am responsible. Not, I'm in charge here, but rather, I am responsible for myself and those under me. I'm, the buck stops here. I'm accountable to you, Lord. And so there's no covering. What I want you to understand is that even though all of our men here are uncovered, some of us a lot more than others because we're losing the natural covering too, what that means has been gutted by our society. That when men exercise their role as men, they are often condemned. As sexists or pigs or something like that, male chauvinists, things along that line. Uh, and I agree that there are a lot of men out there that exercise their authority very selfishly and wrongly. Um, the way to counter that is not for a bunch of women to go around and exercise their authority selfishly and wrongly. We'll not correct it. Rather, is when we begin to give instruction to our young men and exemplify that among our mature bulls to say this is how godly men are responsible. That I care for this gal and therefore I'll exercise my authority not to diminish her, but rather to nurture her. Not to squash her in her place, but rather to exalt that place by my honor. And so we pray and prophesy when we are engaged in worship, our men should be uncovered to do otherwise. It says dishonors your own head. You're not dishonoring the church. You're not dishonoring Christ. You're dishonoring your own head. You are taking your authority and you are discrediting it before God and everyone else. You're simply saying, I'm irresponsible. And that's not manhood. That's boyhood. And unfortunately, most of our men are boys still because our culture has not invested in them what it means to be men and to carry authority, authority that's not to put down, but authority to serve and build up. Again, a mature knowledge of male authority does not bring me 
to lift myself up, but to edify others because I mix that knowledge of my authority with love. And it, it bears this fruit. And so I'm not going to dishonor the headship that God has placed on my shoulders as the man in my home, the man in my church, the man in my society. Rather, I will use this symbol to communicate that I not only have it, but I will exercise it, and I will not do it to my glory, but to the glory of God by edifying others. And that's what we are communicating, men, when we take off our hats. It is not in deference to ladies. It is deference to recognizing divine authority that has been put on your shoulders that you will answer to God for. That's what you're saying. That when our men take off their hats, when we say the national anthem or sing the national anthem, um, what we are saying is we are the leaders of our society. We take responsibility for this country. The men. And that's what we're communicating. But we've lost that. Now it's just a tradition with no meaning. I want to re-infill this with the meaning of God's word. That you are recognizing that you are responsible before God to lead you and yours. And when we lead in worship, in prayer, and in the communicating of the word, that we do so with our head uncovered. And so, ladies, I know you thought that this was going to be all about you. But it's not. It begins with the men. It begins with us. And while we could easily walk out here and say, that's why I take off, we've always done it right. Well, we might have done it right. That doesn't mean we've done it right for the right reasons. And really exercise what that symbol stands for. And by the way, we do know that symbols are important. They do matter, believe it or not. I wear a band on my ring finger of my left hand. It is nothing more than a symbol. It's just a hunk of metal. That's all it really is. But it's there to communicate something. And if I'm out there chasing around other women with this on my hand, what am I doing? I'm violating the symbol And that is important. Just wearing this doesn't mean I'm a faithful husband. It's when my actions back it up. And I wear this to communicate that I am a happily married man and that's the end of it. You're not going to get any farther with me. Well, when we take off our hats, gentlemen, please recognize what you're doing. You're communicating something. Back it up with your actions. You are responsible. And I am fed up with the irresponsible boys 
that are running this town, running our churches, running our families, running our nation. We think it's somebody else's fault. That woman you gave me. No, you're responsible to Christ. Maybe that's why God made us go bald. I don't know. But it's a reminder, gentlemen, of the role that God has for you. Not to beat people into submission, but to serve them with love as the one responsible for them. This is manhood. And God demands it of all of us, gentlemen. To step forward and say, I'm responsible. And think about where real manhood begins. It's when I step before Christ and say, I'm responsible for my sin. It's not my mommy's fault. It's not my society's fault. It's my sin. I'm responsible for it. And therefore... It falls upon me to confess that sin to you. Real manhood is not strutting around, pretending to be something we're not, but being responsible for who and what we are and recognizing we have one to whom we must answer. And it is us who must answer. We go on now to verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. The exact opposite. For that is one of the same as if her head were shaved. And again, he gives this, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. And again, he's going to reiterate it. Why here? One of the reasons why in verse 7. But we come now to the ladies and we have the opposite. Now, a man must have his head uncovered or he dishonors his head. Now, on... Women are different. They have a different role. They are different. God created you differently. And God says, listen, in recognition of the authority that you are under, that there is a secondary authority in your life after Christ, and that is male authority. You, it becomes incumbent upon to cover your head. Or you dishonor your own head. You dishonor the role that God has placed upon you. For just as man is responsible for not only himself, but those that he has authority over and amongst, so you are responsible for submitting to that same authority. This is a double-edged sword, folks. So I'm going to cut the guys... For whenever, and, and hopefully the Lord's doing that in your heart, to cut you to your heart and say, why aren't you exercising the authority that God has given you in your home, in our church, in our society, in our nation, our city, in our schools? Why aren't we leading? Why aren't we men? And here's what I hear a lot of people say, well, women won't let us. Um, that's not a lie. But neither is an excuse. Adam didn't lie to God. 
that woman you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate it. Was that the truth? Did that accurately communicate the account of what occurred? Yes, that was the truth. Did that make him not responsible? Oh, no. Not at all. And so, yes, guys are walking around, so they won't let me. Well, that's probably true, but that doesn't get you off the hook. You're still responsible. Now, ladies, the sad state of affairs is is that it's true. That next to his own sinfulness, the greatest deterrent after his own sinfulness is the unwillingness of women to submit to the authority of men. And I'm not just talking about in home anymore. We're talking about at work. We're talking about in church. We're talking about in society, in our politics. That is the second greatest deterrent to men being men is women trying to be men. Now, I'm going to shake you up here a little bit. Okay, I know that the passage, and this is what other pastors are preaching today, and uh, we actually confronted it at camp this summer. Um, I have a cabin full of boys that are wanting to be men really bad. I have the oldest group in camp. And every evening I let them interrogate me as much as they want. And this very statement came up. This very passage. And one young man says, our church dealt with this and uh, we decided it was just cultural. And of course the passage starts off with the word tradition in verse 2. It's going to close off in verse 10 with uh, the word custom is going to be in that verse. And so we say, well, it's bookend between traditions and customs and therefore it's just cultural. If that is true, then here's what else is cultural. Heterosexuality is cultural. Monogamy is cultural. Because Paul's foundation for this principle is what God created in the garden. He goes to creation. He doesn't go to the, well, this is the way the Israelites did it. This is the way that that the Romans do it. This is the way you do it at those other churches. This is the way. No, he's going to use some some nature arguments here. He's going to use some of that. But he fundamentally goes right all the way back to Genesis before sin. He says, this is the way God created us. He created one to be the helper to the other. He created man first, woman second. He created not man for the woman, but he literally, specifically created woman to meet the needs of man. She was designed for that purpose. This is his argument. He goes back to creation before sin. And so if you want to interject that this is a cultural issue, then I want to contend with you that you have to go join the homosexual movement. You're going to have to go join uh, the anti-marriage movement. You're going to have to... And by the way, you should have no problems with me taking on seven wives. Monogamy itself is based upon pre-creation God's design. 
If this command is a cultural issue, then guess what? You might as well throw out the rest of the Bible because it's all cultural. I've been telling you since I started this ministry um, in, in my series in Matthew that the whole point of church is that we are a different culture. We are our own culture. We are not the culture of this world. We are a culture of heaven. We are a culture of Christ. And so, yes, it's all cultural. Your religion is part of your culture, by the way. An integral part of it. And so I don't hold to this. And those pastors that are out there that are letting us off the hook with this are doing a disservice. And they cannot square their position and then say that they believe in monogamy as God's design. That they believe in heterosexuality as God's design. For this instruction is couched in the same context as where we derive that idea. And so, gals, cover your heads as a sign or symbol of authority that you are under that authority, that you recognize it, and that you honor it. Just as for the man to uncover his head is to recognize and then to carry forth the responsibility he has before Christ as leader, so now you have an opportunity to honor and to recognize that place that God has for you. And it's not a diminished place. It is a different place. And what symbol do we have to use that we are under authority? And from biblical evidence, going all the way back to creation, it is that your head be covered. And we say, well, my head is covered. I have long hair. And many teach that today, only recently. That's in the recent commentaries. You get a commentary, it's over 60 years old. You will not hear that at all. Because our forefathers knew better. There are those that go to verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. They say, see, as long as you have long hair. Some have said, well, that means that when you pray and prophesy, you got to let your hair all down like you're in mourning. That's what the Hebrew women would do when they were in mourning or when they are when they have uh, just completely uh, in sorrow. They would just let their hair all hang down. Um, if that's the case, then... Uh, and, and that's what he's trying to say, then I guess, men, you should have long hair and just make sure you keep it in a bun when you pray. No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, here's a nature issue. By nature, we know that men to have long hair is shameful. And we know that for women to have their hair all shaved off is shameful. And therefore, uh, you have that natural argument, nature itself's argument, Verse 14, if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. If a woman is shaved, it's a dishonor to her. So let's bring this in. Now you have nature's organization. Let's bring it into the church's conduct and say, okay. We're not talking more about hair. Hair is the natural argument. But now we're talking about a secondary covering. I'm not going to put a secondary covering on my head. Because I have a responsibility before God. 
directly. Ladies, you're wearing a covering over your head to make a statement, a symbolic statement that I recognize God's placement of man in authority over me. And so when I come to worship, when I come to pray and to prophesy, I'm going to have this outward symbol to picture something going on in my heart. And verse 10 is the key here. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And we're going to skip the last phrase for a moment. A symbol of authority. You might say, we don't need that, Pastor. I'm submissive in my heart. That should be enough. And I'm going to tell you, you are free not to cover your head. That is your liberty in Christ. But if you love and want to build up the body, I'm going to tell you the best way to communicate your heart in this area. And that is by using the symbol that God's given us. Yeah, that's all it is. It's a communication. It's telling people with this head covering, I want all the young ladies and older ladies of my church to know I am submissive to the authority in my life. Now, are we going to issue burkas at the door next week? No. This is a symbolic covering that is making a statement. It is not about making sure that no one sees your hair. Um, and it's kind of interesting uh, in, in your Orthodox Jewish communities, they don't want to expose their natural hair to any man but their own husband. And so once a woman becomes married, she wears a wig all the time. Um, doesn't mean she doesn't have hair. It's just that she doesn't want anyone to see it but her own husband in Orthodox Judaism today. Um, but the idea here isn't about covering your hair so that you won't be a distraction to men. You are making a symbolic statement. I surrender. I recognize and surrender to this authority. It does not mean, by the way, that because you have a hat on today that you are in submission to that authority, does it? Any more than me wearing this wedding ring says that I'm faithful to my wife. But it's a start. But I can wear this and go and be unfaithful, can't I? And you can just as easily wear that head and be against authority of man in your life, obviously. But if you are surrendered in your heart, in your mind, to the authorities that God has placed in your life, that are between Him, which means that ultimately you're of secondary responsibility. You're saying He's in charge. He's in charge. And in the public arena, we are making that statement. In public worship, I'm making the statement that He is in charge. Does that mean that somehow in your praying that you don't have a direct line to God? No. It doesn't mean that. We are making a public statement for the benefit of all those around us that I have this symbol of authority on my head because I want all those around me to know that I submit to God's design for men and women.
And that's the essence of why you do it, ladies. This is like the essence of why men are uncovered is because of a statement saying, I am responsible before God. Your statement is, I am submissive before God to this authority. That's the statement. And if you're not into symbols, okay, then you figure out some way to communicate it to other people. But symbols are great communicators. They're very powerful communicators. Look at that symbol right there. We talked about that Easter. That symbol of a cross. And we wear it as jewelry. We want to communicate something, don't we? Using symbols. Or a little fish is what the early church used. As their symbol of who they are. Well, ladies, here you have a symbol. Why has it been abandoned? I'll tell you, because of sin. Why has our nation and the American church specifically abandoned this symbol? Is because of rebellion. Rebellion. You women didn't want it. Maybe not you women. Most, I shouldn't say most of you. Uh, quite a few of you weren't born back then when it was the movement called the Women's Suffrage Movement. And it sounded just like what it was, right? Women were suffering. You see, the idea that somehow if we're under authority, I'm suffering, suffer, you know, we're going to uh, let them have the vote. We're going to let them have equal pay. We're going to have to make them equal authority. We're going to, and women's rights. A good number of you were born well after that. And that's all you've ever known, except in this church. But I want you to understand that that is a very recent movement and it was sin. It was rebellion. And it's destroyed families. It's destroyed churches. It's destroyed the spirituality of the church. It has destroyed our church's testimony to the other churches in the world. And it's destroyed women. Women aren't happier today than they were back then. They are not happier today than they were before the women's rights movement. They are miserable. Why? Because God didn't design you to be in charge. The reason you want so desperately to be in charge is because Satan has filled your mind with the lie that to be submissive to authority is to be miserable. I'm submissive to the authority of Christ. It doesn't mean I'm miserable. Submission is joy. It's freedom is what it is. When I submit to the law and I'm driving along the speed limit, I'm not concerned about the police around me, am I? It's freedom. Yes, I got pulled over this week. Don't tell Julie. Okay. <clears throat> I got another warning. I don't know. Must be because I just admit my guilt. I don't know if I did this time. Oh, that we would recognize that being under authority is not bondage. Children, 
being under your parents' authority is not bondage, is it? I know the world wants you to believe that. Your friends want to believe that. That you want to be out there and quote-unquote free. And then you find out that being out there quote-unquote free means you've got to pay bills, you've got to go to work, you've got to get, keep the utilities on, that somebody pays for all those text messages. And, and suddenly you've got bondage. Yeah, you've got to pay the bills. You're responsible for yourself. And suddenly you're like, and about, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not till 30 nowadays, you start to go, oh, I should go live with my mom and dad because that was freedom back then. I think that's why all those 20-somethings are moving in back in with their parents because they failed to be mature and responsible. And they know that if they go live with mom and dad, they can be irresponsible. They'll pay all the bills and I can just live the way I want to. What does that tell you, young adults, young children? They're all in there mostly. Is being submissive to the authority of your parents really bondage? No, it's freedom. They make sure there's food. They pay the bills. They're responsible. The government holds them responsible. You go out there and wreck something, they don't come to you and ask for you to pay for it. They go to your parents. You go spray paint on a wall, guess who pays for that? The responsible people, adults, either taxpayers or if you get caught, your parents. Of course, most taggers now are in their late 20s. So they said the average age of taggers now is like 27. They never grew up and became responsible. You have an opportunity, ladies, to communicate something symbolically. Don't do it if it's not in your heart. But if it is in your heart, why not do it? Why not lay hold of an opportunity to communicate to the world, to everyone, I recognize God's authority in this matter, that I am under man, that I am not independent of him and he goes to communicate that there is don't confuse um, this authority issue with spirituality issues let's not mix those two okay Um, in fact uh, you would be showing greater spirituality than your men by submitting to them even if they don't obey the truth of god's word and that's what comes out in peter right peter communicates that to you ladies that by submitting to those, your husbands, even those who don't obey God's word, that you might win them, you are showing your true spirituality in submitting to them even when they aren't submitting to God. So don't confuse issues of authority with issues of spirituality. But I would contend with you that you can't be a spiritual woman and not submit to the authorities God has put in your life. Just as I can't be a spiritual man and stand in rebellion against Christ. Can't be done. So we have this interjection here in verse 11. The man is not independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. In Christ we are one, but we are in this flesh still, we still desire to have a loving, edifying testimony to others in the way that we can communicate this truth of authority, this issue. The issue is not about hair. The issue is not about your head. The issue really here is about authority. 
The way we can communicate it is through this mechanism. You may say, people don't know what the symbol means anymore. Well, then explain it to them. Why do you always wear a pretty hat? Because I like hats. You just wasted a perfectly good opportunity to tell them, well, I'm showing that I am submitting to the authority of men in my life, that God has put in my life. And see what they look at you like, are you from Mars? Don't you know that women are strong? Yes, we're strong enough to submit our will to the authorities that God has placed in our life. You don't think that that doesn't take an incredible amount of personal character and strength? You never tried. I continue to be amazed at my wife submitting to my authority when I do crazy things. Shows a lot of strength and character. Do not think the submission equals weakness. And then, once that has been resolved in your mind, you will think nothing of the symbol being equaled to weakness. It isn't. It is a place of strength and of freedom to communicate that God's design for you is best and that the world was wrong about women. And they still are. We should be able to figure this out ourselves, Paul says in verse 13. Just judge among yourselves. Think about it. And the problem I've decided is we don't. We don't make these kinds of judgments based upon spiritual truth. We base it upon our culture of the world around us. The way we have been raised. Judge this for yourself. Gals, when you go to the Lord in prayer, there are witnesses. This is my last point. There are witnesses. I say it's just me and God. Not usually. Not only are there witnesses on earth, there are witnesses in heaven that are observing your worship. And I skipped that little phrase in this passage. I said I was going to come back to it. I may not have time to do so. And it's the little passage that says, because of the angels. And the New Testament, both in Peter's writings and in Paul's, we have it in Ephesians 3, we have it in 1 Peter 1, um, verse 12, I think, where Peter talks about that the angels just want to look in on how this relationship between us and God and how we worship and, and, and they just want to watch it. They just want to look at it. They marvel at it. They want to peer into these things, I think is the actual statement there that Peter makes. Um, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, let me read that. Um, Paul makes this statement. It says uh, that the manifold wisdom might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What? We're teaching something to angels? Yes! Because they don't understand us. And they don't understand our relationship with God. They just, it's so wondrous to them that they just, and we have an opportunity by 
by living out the Christian life to communicate something to principalities and powers in heaven. We are communicating something to the angels because we have something they don't. We are the image bearers of God. They are not. That's why Christ saved us and not them. He couldn't die for them. He could die for us. Not because we're worthy, because we're the image bearers, but because the image bearers gave us the legal right to be saved. We can choose. Angels weren't supposed to. And this goes back to the issue of authority. The angels don't have that kind of authority. God didn't give it to them. But God did give us authority. And I am working right now in my writing extensively on this aspect of authority that God has granted to us authority and that that is a better description of the image of God than anything else out there. The authority to choose. The authority to rule. The authority to keep, tend and keep the garden. That is what it means to be, that's the only distinction I can find anywhere in God's Word between us and angels is that we were given the authority to choose and they weren't. And for, that, for a demon to choose to serve God is a violation of the same thing that they chose not to. They, can't, they don't have that right. We do. When you exercise that right to submit, you're communicating some of the angels that they can't understand. Here, you were given authority and you surrender it to God. It blows their mind that you who carry the image of God, who I know marred by sin and all that, but we carry this authority and we bring it to the table and we give it back to God. They don't possess that authority. And in their thinking, it's a marvel that any man who carries that authority, even in this sinful being, to then relinquish it to God is like, Whoa! What is that? And they marvel at what Christ has done for us and our response to God. And in Ephesians, Paul tells us, you have something to teach angels. What are we teaching them? By putting this on my head as I pray, I am communicating something to the angels and that is, I recognize not only Christ as my head, but man as my head. Wow. So are you sure you're alone when you're praying, ladies? Or is an angel watching you pray? And what are you teaching them? Are you teaching them that the Equal Rights Amendment was correct? Or that God's design was correct? Because I guarantee you, your uncovered head is a result of the women's liberation movement and not the purposeful movement of the church into some other expression of submission to authority. We have no other device given to us in Scripture or developed through the ages um, for you to do, but we have this. 
we will bring it up out of the ashes for willing, we can make this symbol mean something, at least in this room, at least in our homes. And for sure, it will mean something in heaven to angels watching you pray, listening to your relationship with God, that you in your heart first want to say, I want to communicate something that is, I want to be a submissive person to the authorities God's put in my life. Christ, my husband, my pastor, my president. I say, what if those authorities are women? Well, that's too bad, but they're there. But specifically, it is this authority. This principle that God has laid out. And you have an opportunity through this symbol to communicate that not only to other women, not only to men, to say, please lead me. The way God is holding you responsible for the I am not going to stand in your way of leading this church, of leading your this family, of leading this society. Please lead. And then secondly, you have an opportunity to have a testimony to the angels themselves saying, you want to see real strength? To be equipped with the image of God. To be equipped with the authority to rule and reign. And to surrender it. That's strength. And it's freedom, not bondage. So we have the argument from creation. We have the argument from nature. We have the argument from church history. But ultimately it boils down to this argument. Because in the heavenly realms it matters. So it should matter here. 